Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast. Hope you're having a lovely day today and a great week. Today is season four, episode 13. I'm really happy to have on the show today Mario Lopez Guevachia. He is a author who is very prolific and has written for many publications online. I've known him for uh, over a year from Medium, and we've talked many about articles and writing. Uh, his new book out is called Cuban Immigrant and Londoner. It's been out for about a month and it's doing very well and receiving great reviews. I recommend it highly and um, I just really am so happy I got a chance to talk to Mario. But oftentimes we uh, develop friendships online and get to talk to people uh, over the years. And when you actually get to talk to somebody face to face who lives in another country, it's just a thrill. And I was really uh, happy to get to talk to Mario. And I know you're going to love the conversation that we had. He's such an entertaining person. Hope that we get a chance to have him on here again. And I hope to see more from him so we have an excuse to do so. Although I don't think we need an excuse. He can come back anytime. He's a great guest. So onward to my conversation with Mario Lopez Guayacochia, author of Cuban Immigrant and Londoner. Here we go. the well-seasoned librarian podcast today i'm very honored to have on my podcast author mario lopez guaycochia mario mario thank you for being on my podcast thank you now in the last month you've had a new book coming out cuban immigrant and londoner how is the book doing and tell me about um what the experience has been like to have the new book out in terms of um um in terms of um um Feedback. I've had a lot of very positive feedback, uh, not just uh, from friends. Obviously, you expect that friends and family, but actually also people um, I know very little um, acquaintances and total strangers as well, which I still don't know how they got hold of my email. But you know, it was it was all positive. In <laughs> terms of sales, um, for example, I can't report yet because I think um, I, I only get a sales report. Uh, after the first six months and then I think um, six months and then nine months uh, so three more months after that so in the yeah after the ninth month I got all the sales reports. So I don't know how many how many books have been sold I mean if I go by um, friends family um, acquaintances and strangers I probably put it now in the 40s 40 50 copies which is a good number but something that's been out for um, just over a month so yes, very, very exciting times, yeah. It must be able to be fun to be able to say, oh, and you refer to my book, my book that came out last month or my new book or my newest book. I mean, that's kind of fun, right? I, I tell you, I'll tell you, Dean, what's been really strange is that I have been um, hitting all the indie bookshops, especially in North and East London. Uh, I am based in North London, so I have haven't crossed the river yet, so I have been because my publisher has sent the book to all the major retailers. So that's um, W. Smith, uh, Waterstones, obviously online, Amazon. But when it comes to independent bookshops, you really have to do some network yourself. So I have been getting on the bicycle and hitting as many bookshops, um, independent bookshops in North and East London. There's loads of them, but what is strange is when I amble in. As, a, as an author, not as a customer, because many of these shops are shops I have frequented, or I, I still frequent um, as a customer. I buy books from them, and then I, I come and say, oh, you know what? 
I'm not here to buy a book. Or I might actually uh, buy a book on my way out, but I'm actually here to promote my book. And it's such a strange and rewarding feeling as well to, to be able to do that. And then we all have a laugh, obviously, because um, some of these some of these staff, I know them, they've seen me be before. I mean, the ICA, for example, went to the uh, um, Institute of Contemporary Art in Central London uh, the other day. And they know me because I was a member for many, many years. And it's all changed inside. And I was having a conversation with this, with this young chap. And uh, another member of staff happened to pass by and she saw me and said, oh, you? I haven't seen you for almost two years. I said, yes, since before the pandemic. And, but now I'm coming back. I'm coming back as, a, as an author. And then we all have a lovely, lovely chat about books and literature and the ICA and the possibility of me coming back um, and um, becoming a member again, you know? So yeah, it has, it's, it's been that sort of strange feeling being on this side of the, uh, of the equation. How is it? Um change anything for you? I know you do a lot of writing online. Have you been getting offers or inquiries from like publications or anything because of the book? It's too, it's too early. Um, it's early days. Um, there is, I mean, there is a festival, funny enough, um, near where I live right now in North London. And, and it's a week-long festival. I'm planning to go on Saturday. I'm planning to buy a uh, Saturday day pass and go there with my partner. And, um, and, and and I was talking to the artistic director and she was sort of suggesting, well, you should come on board. Now you've got, you've got a book out. Uh, you should come on board and, 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 and link up, link up with all the um, writers. Um, we have invited writers from the Caribbean and uh, from Latin America to this festival. So it's not just um, British writers, but it's also writers from the diaspora and beyond. So the possibilities are there. That's why I'm doing a little bit more of our marketing promotion networking at the moment. Um, so yeah, early days though. It must be thrilling to be able to talk to other writers who have books out themselves as a fellow writer. That's gotta be thrilling. It is. Um, it, it, it's funny when you talk to other writers, how we all, especially independent writers like, like me, how we all find ourselves in the same boat uh, in terms of um, doing a lot of network to get our product out there and to, and to flog it off, basically. And there is a sense of solidarity. There is a sense of togetherness and let's all help each other. So um, so I have been, so one of the uh, bookshops I went to was in Hackney, which is in East London. It's a trendy part of East London now. Um, uh, it used to be a no-go area when I moved to, <laughs> when I relocated to London. People used to ask me, what are you doing going to Hackney? You know, you're going to get stabbed there. <laughs> but um, now you can't find a one, now, now you can't find a one-bit flat there for less than £150,000, you know. It's <laughs> that sort of thing right now. It's very trendy. But I was talking to a couple of, uh, to a couple, sorry, to a couple in this independent bookshop, and they're both writers, think he's a poet and she's a fiction, fiction writer or the other way around I can't remember now but we just struck up a conversation about the nature of publishing especially publishing in the times that we're living now in pandemic times when you can't do a lot of Q&A's um, you can't do a lot of readings so I've already had a couple of readings um, or suggestions for readings 
turned down or postponed for next year. Um, so it's very, very thrilling, very exciting to talk to all the writers, especially writers who are in a similar position to the one I'm in. Now, for our listeners who are not familiar with your book, Cuban Immigrant and Londoner, can you tell us a little bit about your book? In a nutshell, Cuban Immigrant and Londoner is a reflection on life and culture, language, and writing from a non-native speaker perspective. So those are the three overarching themes. It's a very short book. It's just over 100-something pages long. But these are themes that I needed to get off my chest. And these are themes that I will get back to um, in my next book because, you know, hopefully there will be another, well, other books. So those are the three overarching um, topics. Life and culture in, in, in Britain, especially in the last 24 years. Well, in the last, I've been here 24 years, but it's, it mainly comprises 21 years because it should have come out last year. Um, language, and in that sense, as, a, as an English language teacher and as a linguist, I am really, really keen and interested in how language uh, has evolved and how it is used as well. Um, and uh, the third theme is uh, writing from a non-native speaker, because um, still I am what we call in, in, in Britain an EAL, so English as an additional language. So those are the three themes. At the same time, the book is a love letter to London. So you, you do get a little, you know, very short um, vignettes, probably about 200, 250 words long, probably about 20, 25, 30 of them, can't remember now, but um, where I show my love for the city in various, in various ways. Uh, from the uh, neighborhood I lived in for many, many years, um, 21 years to be more accurate, Edmonton in Enfield, Northern, to go into the National Gallery and the National Gallery, which is still free, um, submission free, and it's one of my favorite places in London. So though that, that's in a nutshell, that's what the book is about. I love the National Gallery. It's one of the few places I've been to in London that I can you know, remember so clearly. And I know it probably hasn't changed much since the 80s. It's a touchstone for me too. I really love that place. Now, um, although you're a native Londoner, I mean, you're, you're a Londoner, you're, you're born in Havana, Cuba. Um, can you tell us about your time and your youth in Cuba and some of the fond memories you have of it? I was born in Havana, downtown Havana, uh, what we call central Havana. <clears throat> so you've got all Havana and central Havana. Um, still very run down and, and, um, and, and um, pain peeling off the buildings and all that. But uh, I, I had, I have very fond memories of my childhood. Um, I had two doting parents. Um, and uh, on the very other side, sheltered uh, childhood, although I was on the streets from the age of five. So playing baseball mainly, football when the um, World Cup came, came around every four years. Some of the memories I have, uh, the sound of um, transistor radios, uh, for example, all Soviet made 
transistor radios, uh, one of them in my house. Um, I grew up in a block of flats with um, something like um, 20 some flats in that, in that building. And uh, music blaring out of stereos and radios um, almost 24 seven. I, another sound I remember from my childhood, um, the sound of my father playing the piano. So he's a pianist. Uh, for many years, he was a band leader, and now he's been a soloist for many years as well. And we used to have an upright piano. In fact, I played piano for seven years, from age five to 12. Um, never learned how to read music, though, but uh, I uh, used to play by ear. And uh, the sound of him practicing is, is something that has stayed with me for many years after. Um, smells. Um, the fishmongers where, you, where we used to play baseball, one of the many places where we used to play baseball, we used to play behind the fishmongers. It was this little, really small um, courtyard and, um, and it was all concrete, but it was just big enough for us, you know, seven, eight-year-olds to um, get a makeshift um, baseball rolling and, and hitting it. But the smell of cod and hake and all these fish wafting through, um, wafting out of the fishmongers. And, and you know, it's, it's one of the things that, um, in fact, there's, there's one, sorry, I'm gonna go back to the book very quickly. There's one column I wrote in this sort of love letter to London that um, I went to this place in East London and it's in Waltham, it's in um, Leytonstone. And, uh, and it's, 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 a, it's a street called Howe Street. I used to get my cartridges filled in this place called a cartridge world. And those ones, when I when I drove there and I put my car in a supermarket, came out and across in the road, big road called Leverage Road, the smell of fish hit me, man. I mean, <laughs> it was coming out of a, um, it was it wasn't a fishmonger's. I think it was coming out of a of a chippy of a fish and chips show. Oh yeah. But it was just this unmistakable smell of fish, and it took me back to Havana. And you know when they say about, um, um, you know, this famous novel, La Recherche des Temps um you know, those Madeleines that he mentions, it's, it's that smell that, that takes me back to Havana, it's a smell of fish. <laughs> so those are some of the memories growing up um, in Havana. In, um, in the late 70s, so I was when 71, basically, so I just turned 50. Um, but growing up in the, in, the, in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah. Now, are there any uh, Cuban dishes you miss uh, from your youth, like uh, that you used to eat or a relative would make? There was. <laughs> I'm laughing because my cousins used to come from the, um, uh, a lot of my family lived and still live uh, in the countryside. And he, used to come down to Havana to visit us and my cousins, so my cousin's blood cousin and her husband, they used to arrive and my cousin's husband used to say to my, he used to say to my mom, can you cook us, so actually, actually he used to say to my gran, can you cook us some roast chicken? So I'm actually translating literally from the Spanish and, um, and roast chicken basically, so they used to bring the chicken with them, it was just, you know, Pull the chicken, you know, um, get rid of the feathers and pluck the, you know, pluck the feathers and, you know, get it all ready. 
put in the um in in the um in the pan uh, or in the frying pan uh, fried you know and it, it will be ready in less than an hour so that was those chicken uh, and the taste was glorious so uh, every time I have chicken I actually had chicken tonight <laughs> every time I had chi I have chicken it <laughs> takes me back to those years because it happened many times. You know, there were frequent visitors to my house. So it happened many times. And my, my, my grandma used to mock complain. She was always ever so happy to, to, to oblige. But she always says, oh, you always come up with this last minute request. You want my roast chicken and all this. Okay, but she was such a good cook. So yes, that, that's one of the things I miss, yeah. Yeah, I, I do that too. I often complain. I bellyache if people want, if the kids want me to make something, but I'm always happy to do it. But I still have that thing like other people do where you act indignant that they spring something upon you, but you're happy to do it. You really love doing it. Now, how did you come to live in um, in England, in London? Uh, what, when did you come there and what brought you to England? I was here in 1997. So I met my now ex-wife in Cuba. She, she went to Cuba for six months in 1996 and uh, we hit it off uh, immediately. We had a lot of things in common and um, we started our relationship there. Then I came to London in April 97 for a month just to see how what it was like. I had never ever been outside Cuba. I'd never been on a plane. You know. So I arrived here and um, one of the things that surprised me was that the image of the uh, of the detached, cold, um, um, you know, Saint Croix uh, English person, British or mainly English person, was you know was not really um, one that uh, matched my reality. Then again, it was the it was the lead to the general election that brought new labor to power in 1997 so i went back to cuba in may 1997 a couple of days after new labor um came to power and they had that big landslide um win then i came back in the same year in november um november 1997 and um you know my ex and i stayed together for um 20 plus years uh, we, I mean, we are on very good terms, so we got divorced. But, but she didn't fancy, for some reason, she didn't fancy, she didn't see herself living in Cuba um, for various reasons. Uh, various reasons. But uh, I think it was a case also that I spoke the language and, uh, and in terms of prospects, I, I probably have better prospects here than she could have had in Cuba. I mean, she was a dancer and she was a dance teacher as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure she'd have found a way, mm -hmm. but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a culture as well. So the Cuban culture is the uh, political situation. And I don't think that she saw herself in a role. So that's how I ended up in London, in, you know, 24 years ago. Um. Did you have much culture shock when you came to London? Was it a real different world for you? Or were you able to, you know, um, kind of like figure it out quickly? Or did you, or was, was there like a lot of difference between the two countries when you moved there? It was a big shock. Um, I did English in uni as my major. So that's, I did English lit and language. Nobody told me that London 
was mixed, you know, in, yeah. in, in my lectures in, in, in back in uni, the impression that you got was that everybody sat down to have tea at four o'clock or five o'clock. Yeah. Um, the whole country. I mean, how, yeah. you know, to the sound of the Big Ben. Um, I mean, you know, you know, you always sort of, it, it, it always struck me as funny when I saw a map of Britain, how the uh, the citizens of Liverpool, Manchester and Birmingham fare listening to or hearing the bells of the, uh, the Big Ben at five o'clock, but never mind. But it was that impression that the country was very uh, monochromatic in that sense, very white. Yeah. And you arrive in London and suddenly I was walking up to people on the street in those first few months. I stopped, had to stop doing it because it was so embarrassing. And asking people, you know, black people, brown people, speaking to them in Spanish actually sometimes. Uh, where do you come from? Are you... Are you um, um, Salvadorian? Are you um, Brazilian? And then they, they look at me as if I was mad. So that was the biggest culture shock I had in uh, in the UK when I arrived. The um, the other one was the sheer size of London. I mean, having been here before uh, for a month. I didn't really clock in how big the city is, uh, which is basically it's a union of two cities. So you've got the northern um, part of the city, which is the original settlement, and then the southern part, south of the river, came along after. And then obviously you have the uh, the suburbs, how they expanded. But since then, I have actually circumnavigated London on my bicycle, something that I did in 2019. And I went from Enfield to Havering, from Havering to Croydon, Croydon to Hillington, back to Enfield. And also Enfield, northernmost borough, Havering, easternmost borough, Croydon, southernmost borough, and, and Hillington, westernmost borough. And it took me 12 hours to, to cycle around those parts of London. So that was the sort of culture shock that uh, I, I had to mention by two. I mean, I could, I could carry on. Now, you had mentioned the cycling just now, and I know that you're a cycling instructor. How did you get into that? And what's the experience been like for you um, kind of cycling around London and its environs? The whole cycling instructor gig came around uh, almost two years ago now. Um, so it was December 2019. Uh, I had already been teaching English, so I'd gone back to teaching English for a few months. And uh, and I had this week in the school I was teaching at where um, I was off. Basically, there was no, there were no lessons to, or I did, I wasn't giving any, any lessons to teach. And so there was some cycling training. Uh, available. I applied for it. I had already led a cycle club in my last primary school, so I used to work in primary schools as well. Sorry. And, uh, and, and I've always been very enthusiastic about cycling, very uh, motivated, um, and, uh, and trying to, to, in a way, trying to raise awareness of cycling 
as a um, as a as, as a, um, a sustainable form of traveling. So the opportunity was to be to me. So I did the training. It was a four day training. I I passed um, the uh, the course. It was just a pass or fail basically. And I became a uh, cycling instructor just as a, the pandemic struck. So I wasn't able to to work as a proper cycling instructor for for a few months. How has it been? It's been great. Um, I get to go to a lot of schools, and usually we do we deliver a week long cycling training program that covers everything from off road training to on road training. And it's great to see kids engaging with the environment around them and and, and exposing the kids to the, um, the the car-driven, pun intended, a culture that we have in this country, which unfortunately has put us in the position, not just in Britain, but globally, in the position that we're now in terms of the climate crisis that we've got, that we're facing. So as a cycling instructor, I always try to raise awareness of... Um, with the kids, get your parents now, or get your, your your uncle, your aunties, get your family cycling now. Go on a family cycling trip, and uh, we offer the. I mean, all the services that we that we offer, they're free because they're paid for by the local council, which is a great opportunity we've got in London. So it's been really, really satisfactory. Also, working with such fantastic people, my colleagues, they're just great. They, it, they, it, Usually it's two of us, but there's such a, a beautiful camaraderie and, and support for each other uh, in the way that we lead activities as well. It's great. It, it's really, really good. Something that I recommend, it, I recommend to anyone, um, not just in Britain, um, whenever you have the opportunity, go and find out, um, do a little bit of research. Is there any cycling training um, program being offered in your area? Come on. Join, join the team. <laughs> well, you've gotten me, I mean, I've been reading your work about this and I really, you've gotten me thinking about it more and more and looking at bicycles and my wife and I definitely want to, um, you know, do this more. And, and the Bay Area is becoming, where I live is becoming more cycling friendly. I know not all the United States is, and I think we're behind Europe as far as that goes. Is England becoming increasingly cycle friendly, like more user friendly for cyclists? It is, it is, and I have seen the changes in London in the last six or seven years. Um, it was in 2015 when I started venturing a little bit, a bit further out from than just my neighborhood or my borough. And, um, and the um, cycle infrastructure was is, is in sort of, a, uh, I'd say, inchoate um, stages at the time. And from that time up to now, you can see the changes. You can see, for example, the embankment, where, which runs along the Thames. It's now a segregated, most of it is a segregated cycle lane running east-west. And I remember when it was being built. Um, you've got um, lots of parts in, in the city where you've got segregated uh, or a quiet road Network, um, sorry, ne network of um, um, network of uh, quiet, um, cycle-friendly roads, and you, we also have something now which you might want to go online and read read up on it. 
as well. It's something called LTN, so it stands for Low Traffic Network. They have caused a little bit of an uproar um, here, in spe specifically in London, because of the way they have been introduced. Now, whilst I agree with them in principle, as a walker, as a cyclist, as somebody who's 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 all up for uh, promoting active travel, I think the way they have been introduced has actually rubbed a few people up the wrong way, <laughs> and even people who normally be sympathizers because what they're doing is that they're literally closing off um, entire roads and uh, and it, it can be with either a plant uh, ornament or it could be something else so it's street furniture and uh, and decreeing that as a low traffic neighborhood and what they do is that they redirect the traffic so unless you're a resident on the road you're not allowed to go through it obviously um, what you do have instead is a, is a bigger footfall, pedestrians, bicycles, um, e-scooters, uh, normal motorbikes as well. But what we've realized is that, is that people, are, some people, or a lot of people, are not actually leaving their cars behind. What they're doing is that they're taking their cars up to the high road and then using that as a thoroughfare to get to whatever they need to get. So rather than you know, diverting people from the motor vehicle, what they're actually doing is diverting the traffic onto a road that sometimes has been narrowed down because of all the COVID measures that we've had in the last year or so, where we've actually widened up our pavements. So you have, so you have barriers on the road um, to make the pavement wider whilst the traffic has increased maybe twofold, maybe threefold, because you've got a couple of LTNs, you know, on, on a couple of roads parallel to the, to the main road. So it's a, it's a, it's a funny situation now that we've got in London. And, uh, and I've got a few people backs up, unfortunately. So I, I think people yeah. hate change, you know, people don't like, I, I see it here all the time, like you propose any change that might make things better and people immediately get their nose out of joint. And I really like the LTN um, idea. We studied it in school and I know that in like many European cities, they have areas that there's no uh, automobile traffic, which I'm a hundred percent for, but unfortunately I'm a minority in America. We, we love our cars and we would, we would drive them into our bedroom, into our, our bed if we could here in America. I mean, I would just, we have a fetish with automobiles. It's insane. And I would love to see us have more bicycle travel, more travel of all mm -hmm. sorts, but the automobile thing is going to be our, the end of us, unfortunately. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, now, 
how did you become a writer journalist? I'm familiar with you largely because of your writing and I followed you on Medium and now I follow your articles you post in Twitter and from The Guardian. Tell us how you became a writer or journalist. Um, no, not the journalist, but yeah, sorry. But, um, and, and, and it's right now. I've got good friends who are journalists, so I never put myself in that category. But good the writing bit, I started it um, back in university, and uh, and it was a way for me to deal with the uh, situation that we had in Cuba at the time, um, the terrible nineties and the economic crisis. I'd probably say political crisis as well, an ideological crisis. Um, following the fall of the Berlin Wall. And um, and it was a way for me, so I started writing. At the beginning, it was um, mainly in Spanish. It was poems and, and short stories. And then eventually, I ventured into English because I thought, you know, I, um, I'm studying the language. I was already in third, fourth year. And I was doing a, quite a bit of freelance work as well. And my freelance work was mainly translating. Uh, well, it was a little bit of translation and there was a little bit of um, um, transcription as well. So I met uh, people from the States, for example, uh, or from, um, from Europe, and um, they would be in Cuba doing various projects. And then they, uh, the grant they, uh, they, they, they've been given allow for some money to be paid to a, uh, somebody to transcribe um, tapes. And so I did that for a while. And uh, and then I got offered the opportunity to, to, to have some of my articles published abroad. Now, because of the nature of these articles, many of them criticizing the Cuban government, I asked for my name not to be used. So um, I still stand by that decision, by the way, but you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, there will be articles, and this is pre-internet, so there will probably still be articles floating out, out there, you know, that were penned by me, but with, not, you know, somebody else's name on it. And then I relate to the UK, and a friend of mine was working at, um, at a, a newspaper, and this newspaper catered mainly to the Latin American community, and it was called Noticias, which is news. But the middle section, the middle section was a supplement and it was a supplement in English and she was the one she's British and she was the one who oversaw the um, content in that middle section so she asked me to write for it for, for it and she asked me to write so she, I, I write in Spanish and then she translated into English so that's how I started writing here um, and the pay was dreadful so I think if I remember correctly it was 15 pounds per article and they took ages to, to pay you but nevertheless yeah. you know yeah. That was sort of my way in. And then eventually I started sending um, pieces to various publications. The Guardian published an, an obituary written by me in 2005. Before that I had letters published in, on the letters page, but you know, I, I didn't count that, count that as, a, as, a, as writing, but they published an obituary to a leading figure of Afro-Cuban culture in Cuba and also at the time, I thought, wow, this is big. And then after that, um, they published a, um, I had three essays on, on the life and works of um, perhaps of more, one of our more prolific writers, Virgilio Piñera, uh, 2012, um, published in The Guardian, Prisma, and a magazine I used to be subscribed to called Prospect. 
and um, Prospect is a sort of what you call an app market magazine. It's very hard to get into it. And um, and, and, I, and I sent my submission and I was happy that I accepted. So those, that's the sort of thing that, um, that I've been doing for the last um, 16 years. Yeah. And then I found Medium, a friend of mine recommended Medium to me. And I thought, wow, this is great. Not only do you get paid for your writing, but you also uh, build a community around your writing. You, you, you have access to great writing as well. So I've read your writing as well in uh, One Table, One World. And um, it, yeah, Medium's been like my home for the last, uh, I think I've been there since 2016. Yeah, so for the last five years. Now I'm a big fan of one of your series. Um, you have an you have a series of articles that you are visiting local graveyards in London, and I think you had one you called Abney, and then there was the Magnificent yes. Seven. Can you tell us about those? So the Magnificent Seven is is a it's a group of seven Victorian era cemeteries that were erected to ease pressure on graveyards in London. So. This is the 1840s now, uh, or just before the 1840s, because I mean, the first one I think was finished in 1843. And um, the, um, the parishes in London, and this is more like sort of what you, where you have, where you have the city now, and you have uh, SE1, so um, that'll be the uh, Royal Festival Hall and all that sort of central area. The capacity to bury new bodies had reached upper limit. So they had to find ways to bury new people. So what they came up with was build a series of cemeteries. And if you look online, um, you will see that the, um, it's got, when you look at the seven, it's got this sort of oval shape. And uh, because they were built around what was then the periphery of London. So it's just outside London. So you have a Highgate to the high, yeah, Highgate to the north and Abney as well. But Highgate is sort of more north north, whereas Abney is more northeast. And then you've got Tower Hamlets, which is east, and working class uh, neighborhood as well. Then you go down, you've got a name um, Nunhead, Southeast, then you've got um, West Norwood sort of uh, still a little bit southeast, but going more towards west, you've got Brompton. So you've got all the, this network of cemetery. The first one was Kensal Green in West London. And my girlfriend and I started, we, we started going to Apney quite often during the first lockdown here from March to, uh, um, uh, to June 2020. And we looked online and thought, actually the next one, um, Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park, it's just on the road, we could just cycle. So we went to that one. And then she told me, I've got a cousin who lives near Nunhead and we could go visit them and then go to the graveyard. And then we went there. So we cycled down there, a bit further away. And we just got into all this. What attracted, um, what was attractive to us was it, it was a mix of history, culture, architecture, and how these cemeteries 
give you a powerful insight into how the class system works in this country. So, for example, uh, you look at a Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park and then you look at Brompton Cemetery Park. Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park in East London, working class, very close to the docks. And, and the docks were almost like the lifeline of the city for many years, for centuries, I say. And a lot of trade was, was conducted on the Thames. And uh, in the 1960s, the local council tried to close down Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park because they didn't see the point of having this, this graveyard there. And the local population, you know, rose up in arms, so to speak. And, um, and they said, well, why is it that you want to close us down? Because we are working class. We are the sort of, you know, deprived part of London, but you won't touch the others. If you contrast that, and you, you actually, when you go in, you actually, you, you, you see, you, you get a feel for the area. When you go to Brompton, on the other hand, it's one of the poshest parts in London. Um, Brompton sits in the um, in, in in Kensington, in the boroughs Kensington and Chelsea, which is as posh as you get, and um, it's it's so well taken care of. By the way, I'm not slagging any cemetery off. By the way, I loved Brompton when I went there. I've been there a um, couple of times, and uh, and I loved it. And, and it's got this lovely bit in the middle. So if you ever get the chance to go, go to the middle bit. It's got this lovely, it's like a circle, but it, it reminds you of the sort of Greek um, architecture. And, um, but because the area where it sits, very close to King's Road, very close to Fulham Broadway, very close to this hub of uh, boutiques, and um, and um, uh, up market shops, it's seen in a different light. So it was powerful eye opener for me when I cycled around these seven. I covered the seven cemeteries. Couldn't get into Highgate though; it was too late by the time I got there. Uh, so last admission is uh, quarter past four. I got there quarter to five. So next time, it's the only one I haven't. I've never been to. By the way, it's the only one that you pay for. So you pay, so Highgate Cemetery, it sits on two sides. So um, if you want to go to one side, I think you pay, um, I think it's, it's six pounds, seven pounds, I can't remember now, but I think it's about six pounds. If you want to go to both sides, then you pay 10 pounds. Um, but then on the other side is where you have Karl Marx's um, grave, which you know, is probably this is a magnet for all, Want to be socialists? I have spent some time in some British cemeteries, although I've never been to Highgate. We used to go to Barry Sinemans and a lot of the small towns in Suffolk, their graveyards. I actually got locked in a graveyard. Um, all oh. my friends and I, there, we went, I think it was later in the day, but I don't, we didn't think it was close to closing time. And the caretaker walked right by us. And then we went to get out and we were locked in. And we had to get on top of a crypt and climb over a um, wall. And I think I got my suit ripped and it was just embarrassing, oh. but, but uh, yeah, it was, that was, we would have been trapped in there all night if we couldn't get out. But uh, yeah, I've, I, I was amazed by, I know it sounds weird, but like the beauty of the graveyards and um, there it's very different than America. Cause I think we have very stark, very sterile graveyards and in England they uh, they put more loving touch and there was more writing 
I remember one time there was a, I think it was, this was in Barry Cinnamon's, there was a grave of a woman that had been, the, her whole story of her death was on there. It was how she had been hit by a bolt of lightning while she was saying her nightly prayers. And it was stuff like that. A lot of them had, uh, you know, skeleton faces or skulls on them and stuff. And it was really an interesting atmosphere, but they were very well kept. And uh, the history, just seeing graves that were from like 1700s, 1600s, it's, it's just bowls you over. Because in America, we forget that we're a new country and that we don't really have the history that Europe has. Hmm. Now, I know you primarily, I'm, I'm, I, um, first saw your writing on medium uh, i think it was a work about food do you do a lot of cooking yourself i usually do cooking on the weekend during the week um i do very boring um i cook very boring food uh, i just cook food to um to just one pot or something and then that lasts three or four days and that's it but then on the weekend that's when i get creative so um, guess what? I just made jollof rice nice. <laughs> last weekend for the first time in my life. I finally um, knuckled down and uh, and I got the jollof rice done. It was it was good, by the way. So the verdict the, the was it was you know it was good. Jollof one to ten, ten being very good and one being poor. I probably give myself a five. Five for six, actually. I'm, I'm going to give myself a six. Because, um, um, so I, I, I usually cook at my girlfriend's, uh, which is where I start usually the weekend. And um, with a writer, because she's vegan, or I, I should say uh, flexi-vegan. And there's a writer we both uh, like, uh, a good writer. Uh, her name is Mira Soda. And she publishes a um, vegan food column in the Guardian every Saturday. And that is our uh, first stop on a Saturday uh, before we even decide what to eat or what to cook that night. We look at her recipe and then uh, decide um, whether we want to we want to cook that or not. Um, so yes, I have I have made curries, um, lots of them. I have um, uh, what else? Um, I mean, there's a very good curry I make again by Mira Soda. It's a hake and what is this um, vegetable called? Um, hake and um, looks like a potato. It's a root vegetable, but it's not a potato. It's not a sweet like, potato. Like a turnip or it's a the other one. Um, Mm, it's not a turnip. It's the other. Um, ah, it will come back. It will come back anyway. So, um, but um, yeah, I've made that a few times. Uh, what else? But I, I tried to. What I tried to do, Dean, is move away a little bit from what would be the uh, convention. So you're Cuban. Uh, you're gonna cook. Cuban food, yeah, I'm, I think at the beginning when my girlfriend and I first started a relationship, I used to make a, a lot of okra-based dishes, for example, okra is big in Cuba, and uh, and corn as well, so there were, there were dishes like that. Um, and then I started moving away because I like 
experimenting in the kitchen, if I've got the chance, if I've got the opportunity, I will go out of my way to to cook something that um, is out of my comfort zone as well. And it's something that I, I like doing. It's the same with my writing as well. I like writing about things that take me out of my comfort zone. Um, and the cemetery ideas is one of them, for example, because you have to do a lot of research and a lot of uh, reading about the places that you're going to visit. So, yeah, so that applies to my cooking as well. Yeah. Now, is there a lot of it? Have you been able to encounter many uh, Cuban restaurants in um, London? There are, I'd say, Cuban-themed restaurants. So there's one not far from where I live. Um, it's called Escudo de Cuba. Um, so Escudo, in this case, um, stands for coat of arms. So it's a Cuban coat of arms. So they actually have an image of, of the um, um, Cuban coat of arms in the restaurant. And it's a restaurant stroke bar. Um, stock cafe um, and it is in a very popular and trendy area as well there is another one in south london um near waterloo i've been there but uh things that we've there's a new one actually there's a new one that's just in fact we were looking to launch the book properly officially there and i've just been in talks with them today as it happens and, and that'll happen next year. And um, they've, they've just opened recently. And, um, and they are primarily a bar. So they specialize in cocktails and especially Cuban cocktails, but they also serve food um, like tapas and this sort of thing. Um, but what, you might, what, what you're more likely to find here is um, Cuban themed menus in some restaurants, some eateries, some cafes. The Cuban thing is that the Cuban community is not as large as other communities. And unless you have a Cuban, so I've got a very good friend who's, um, who's a chef and he's got, or he used to have, I don't know whether he's got anymore, he used to have a stall in Notting Hill. So in the, in the um, in Portobello market. So there's a Portobello market in Notting Hill um, there is um, there is an area called Akan Village, and Akan Village is um, is is a, is a collection of different stalls. It's it's a it's a food place. It's a, it's, a, it's a it's a food heaven, I'd say. And you've got different dishes from all over the world. So you've got Polish cuisine, you've got Ghanaian cuisine, you've got um, Colombian cuisine, you've got uh, Indian. And then he had a stall there where he used to sell traditional Cuban recipes, uh, traditional Cuban food. And, and, I, and I went there a couple of times, um, also to support him. Um, so, but yeah, um, you do have places in London, um, but if I compare the provision of Cuban food, the, um, the, the, the offer to other kinds of cuisine, we still in very low numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, saw a picture of you on Instagram at a Caparilla event. Do you practice Caparilla yourself? I love Caparilla. I almost, almost became a uh, Caparillaista many, many years ago. Again, shortly after I arrived in London, I saw this ad for the Caparilla School and um, I thought of joining. But then 
my son was a baby and I thought actually I need to I need to take care of this bit as a father not being you know not going to capoeira classes after work also I had a very demanding job at the time I used to, I used to work as a travel consultant oh, yeah. so but oh, yeah. that that love for capoeira stayed with me and so I've got very good friends who are capoeiristas and whenever I can I go to a roda and I love 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 rodas uh, it's magical. It's really magical. Um, I've got a, a, in fact, I've got a very good friend who's married to a guy who runs a capoeira school in East London. She is an Afro-Cuban dance teacher, and her husband is a capoeirist, and he's been one for many years. I think for more than thirty years. So he runs a school, and when he organizes a roda, I I try to find some time to come down and. Uh, and watch the capoeiristas. Um, um, I usually use the word dance because it's a dance. It's a it's a type of dance. Yeah. Um, I know it's a martial arts. Um, so it's, it's it's a martial arts, but it's like the best of both worlds. You get to dance and do martial arts at the same time. Exactly, <laughs> it's a type of performance. Um, so I love watching capoeira. Yes. I was going to ask you, um, I know you're, you're fairly well read and you read a lot. Who are some of your favorite authors that you're reading right now? Okay. So I'm going to, so first, uh, my first answer is going to be authors in English. Um, I tip my hat to the following writers. Salman Rushdie, Zadie Smith, um, Margaret Atwood. Who else? Um, uh, James Baldwin. I'm just going to have a very quick look because um, I've got them all. Oh, Milan Kundera. I know he's not. He's I read him in translation. Um, those are just some of the writers I I adore. Um, in Spanish, um, I'd say that my favorite writer, it's a Cuban writer, um, I mentioned him before, Virgilio Piñera, um, poet, essayist, novelist, playwright, mainly his plays um, and, his, um, and his short stories is what he's known for the most. Um, poets as well, because I read poetry as well. Uh, less than people credit me for, but more than I used to when I, you know, than when I, than when I was little. Poets in translation again, Mahmoud Darwish, the late Palestinian poet. I love him. Uh, John Keats, uh, the so-called Cockney poet, um, who um, he was the Tory press who derisively called him the Cockney poet. In fact, I was in Keats' house well, outside kids' house, sorry, last week, because <laughs> I went up to Dom Books in um, in in Hampstead Heath, and uh, and I just went around to um, kids. I think it's called Kids Road or Kids Lane, and um, just took a photograph of the house, and where I used to live. Sorry, um, open brackets. Uh, where I used to live in Edmonton, in Enfield, uh, there's also a kids' house there because kids lived in Pondersend. Uh, which is nowadays Enfield, and then he moved up to what is nowadays known as Edmonton. And um, 
early in his life. And so there is a blue plaque there. Now, I don't know whether, I've never been inside, but I don't know whether you can visit the house or not, but there's a blue plaque there saying, poet John Keats lived in this house from this time to that time. And so John Keats, close brackets. Um, who else? Uh, I love um, Keats's work. Keats is amazing. It's just, yeah. Uh, Maya Angelou. Uh, in fact, oh, Maya yeah. Angelou as a, as a non-writer, uh, writer as, an, as a poet as well. So those are the people who inspire me. I'd say that of all of them, the non-fiction that I have found and that I have gravitated towards in the last few years the most is James Bowen's. Um, Bowen has come back uh, um, very, very strongly. I would say in the last three years, so there was a documentary I've seen uh, three times now called I Am Not Your Negro, um, came out in 2017, 2016, 2017, I think. I think I, I saw it in 2018, and then I saw it again in 2019, and then I saw it again last year. And then I bought the book that came out of, so, so on the back of the documentary. And then I saw a couple of other, um, I saw this famous, oh, another poet, Nicky Giovanni. So then I saw this famous conversation in two parts. It's an hour each, which is on YouTube. And I recommend to all your listeners and to go on YouTube and dig this out. It's a gem. It's, it's a jewel. I think it's, it's, it's this beautiful moment of, of what I'd say American culture. Nicky Giovanni in conversation with James Baldwin. And oh, wow. uh, oh, it's, it's, it's just a meeting of, it's, it's, it's a meeting of minds, you know, two giants of American literature for me, not just African-American literature. For me, it's more like American literature. No, you're absolutely so right. So Baldwin is the one yeah. I, have, I have been um, going back to the most in, in latter years. Um, so I want to ask you, now that the book is out, what's next for you? What's next for me is a lot of promotions. For, for example, I've just signed off today some merch to go with the book. And, oh, nice. Um, I know, I know. It feels so good to be able to pay for so much. I mean, I've got some merchandise that was sent to me by my publisher, like flyers and uh, and, and order forms and posters and this and that. Uh, but uh, this is actually more like clothing that I can pay for because I got this grant from Arts Council England. And the, the, the grant was, the reason why I applied for it was to go towards this, to pay for this stuff. So um, a, a lot of uh, work, a lot of, I mean, tomorrow I'm going, uh, I'll probably be crossing the river and then hitting a little bit of um, SE1, which is still still um, uh, central London. So it's southeast, so SE stands for southeast. It's, it's southeast London, but the one stands for is sort of like the main district, it's still local central district. And, um, and hitting as many independent bookshops as, as I possibly can. Uh, then there's the book launch that I'm, I'm coordinating for next year. And um, uh, I've got another Zoom interview coming up with uh, East London Radio. And I'm also a podcaster, although I haven't done it for almost a year now. But um, I have, um, I used to present, I have to say I used to. Um, I used to present a, um, a podcast called Marathon Man because I'm a marathon runner. 
So Marathon Man was a pun on the movie Marathon yeah, yeah. Man with Dustin Hoffman. And now it's uh, shamelessly, shamelessly so. But yeah, um, um, so uh, East London Radio has been so good in terms of supporting my podcast. So I spoke to the guy who runs it and then he was sent a copy, a free copy by my publisher. And then he will be doing an interview. Um, so that's why it's next I'm already looking um, for material for my next book because um, it's once you get the writing book. Um, I mean, I got the writing book uh, many years ago, so hence the book out. But once you get this writing book, you you know that you can do it, and you know that it's there is a market for there is a market for people like you, a non-native speaker, but who's bringing a different perspective into a society where you really have to find your way to, to fit in. Um, once you do that, uh, for me, the sky's the limit, really. Um, so that's, that's, that's what's in the pipeline for me. Well, I, I encourage my listeners to get your book online. You can get it on Amazon and other uh, forums, and then also to follow you on Twitter to see what you're uh, writing and publishing on uh, The Guardian and Medium, because your work is amazing. I really love your work. I'm a fan of it, and I always like your takes on things. Uh, your writing is really fresh, and I think you're probably one of the most important writers we have today. I think that your stuff is really, and I think people are going to catch on to you, and you're going to be very famous, so... I, I, I wish you nothing but luck, but you don't need it. You got you got it all in talent. So thank you very much. <laughs> or I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to appreciate I really had a um, good time talking to you and I hope we can have you on here again sometime. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was my conversation with Mario Lopez Guayacochia, author of Cuban Immigrant and Londoner. Uh, he was a great guest, and I look forward to having him on the program again. Uh, he's also available on Medium online and on The Guardian online. Uh, those links will be in the bio as well. Uh, check those out. Um, also, coming up on Monday, we're going to have our guest, um, Christian Schilling, who is the author of The Fragrant Kitchen Cookbook, among other things. Uh, she writes um, about cooking with spices, and also she talked to us about creating perfume and fragrances. On Friday, we're going to have Julia Helena Hadas, who has a book, Witchcraft Cocktails, among other things. She'll be here on Friday. And then we'll have some programming for the winter um, solstice and Christmas coming up in the weeks after that for holiday specials. Uh, and then uh, we're going to have programming for season five uh, in January, starting off with Lynn Bauman and her book, Brownies for Breakfast. So look for those things coming in the year. I hope you have a great weekend and come back to us for our episode on Monday. Until then, happy cooking. Have a great weekend.